Liturgy is one of those words that we often have an immediate, strong reaction to. For some, the word stirs a sense of deep meaning, historical rootedness, and comforting familiarity. For others, liturgy evokes far less positive notions, a form of worship full of archaic language, outdated ritual, and dead repetition. In our interview today, I'm talking with Jonathan Gibson about why liturgy, something he argues that we all already have, even if we don't know it, can be such a powerful force for good in the life of the Christian when rightly understood and practiced. Jonathan serves as Associate Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary and is the author of Be Thou My Vision, a Liturgy for Daily Worship from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. It's good to be here, Matt. So today we're going to talk about this topic of liturgy. Uh, it's a word that for some I think is encouraging. Uh, it's, it's got a richness and a depth to it. But then for many others, I think it's, it's, there's a suspicion around this idea of liturgy. Uh, it can evoke feelings of coldness or dryness or Roman Catholicism or something like that. And so I, I want to kind of unpack that a little bit and explore why uh, you would say this is a really valuable, valuable concept for all Christians. Uh, so maybe before we jump into some of those other topics, though, could you just define liturgy simply? How, what do you mean when you use that word? Well, the first thing I would say is that it um, comes from the Bible. It's a Greek word, liturgia, from which we mm. get our English word liturgy. And it's used in two ways in the New Testament. Uh, one way is in Philippians 2.30, where Paul says that Epaphroditus' self-sacrificial service uh, work was a service to him, a liturgia. Huh. It was like an act of worship. And then it's used more narrowly in other parts, like uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 21, uh, where it's used of the ritual service at the tabernacle. So it's used broadly of all service to people or to God and more narrowly of a service when God's people gather in a ritual setting. Mm. And so we use the word worship, uh, which also can mean service. And that's really what the word means. It's a service. It's an act of worship. So those who are uh, suspicious of it or nervous of it, understandably so, you, you think of, as you said, Catholicism or nominalism. Uh, people think, well, if I use liturgy, I'll become a nominal Christian, mm. you know, just someone who goes through the rote um, liturgy each week but doesn't actually engage with it in their heart. Uh, so I, I get that, um, but it's a biblical word. I think we should use it, and uh, it doesn't have to be something that's just uh, rote or formulaic, but it is something that actually helps you engage with it. Mm. So then when you when you would use that word in conversation, say, speaking about your church's liturgy mm. or even a personal liturgy, what would you be meaning when you say that word? What do you have in mind? I have in mind the narrow sense, the sense of what we do as God's gathered people in a ritual sense. So church liturgy, I'm meaning it in the narrow sense of the order of service of worship in a church gathering. Mm. Uh, for my own personal quiet time, I'm meaning it as the order of elements that I'm using in my personal quiet time. Uh, the way I put it to people is, it's not whether your church has a liturgy, it's just which liturgy your church has. Mm. So you look at the evangelical non-denominational churches, and they say, well, we, we don't do liturgy. Uh, but actually they do. Their liturgy is, you sing for 20 minutes, 
you say a prayer, you listen to a Bible talk, and then you sing for 10 minutes. Yeah. That's a liturgy. Mm. It's just, it's unwritten. Uh, it's un- uh, not thought through well, perhaps. Uh, but we all have a liturgy. It's, so it's not whether, but which. Mm. And the same goes for your quiet times. We all have a liturgy in our quiet times. Uh, our liturgy generally is start with a quick prayer to ask God to bless the quiet time. All right. Read the Bible and then respond with some petitions to God. So mm. it's prayer, Bible reading, prayer. Yeah. Uh, and what I'm trying to do with Be Thou My Vision is say we've all got a liturgy, but is it a good one or a bad one? Is mm. it is it a rich one or is it a bit anemic? Yeah. And that's what I've tried to do with Be Thou My Vision is enrich each of our daily liturgies uh, with elements that I I hope sort of uh, enhance our time with the Lord. One of the things that I've often noticed about different liturgies that I've been exposed to, or again, to use the maybe more generic evangelical word, different orders of service, is that the more maybe intentional ones often have almost a kind of narrative arc to them there's a there's a starting point as you enter into the service, and it's different than the ending point. You're kind of going somewhere. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to that. Is that something that you feel like is kind of inherent in a well-designed liturgy? And how would you describe maybe that journey that the, the worshiper goes on? Yes. When I did this book, Reformation Worship with Mark Ernji, one of the things we noticed was that the Reformers were very intentional that the liturgy should communicate the story of the gospel. And so you start with God calling us to worship. You don't, so you start with a scripture reading. You don't start with a prayer. But you think about most non-denominational church services, they start with prayer. Actually, you open with a praise song. Okay, okay, open with a praise song or a prayer. But notice it's man's response to God Mm. is what we begin with. But that's not where worship begins. It begins with God speaking to us. And then we respond like God first spoke to Adam in the garden, gave him the law to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Mm. and then expected him to respond. And if he had passed the test in the garden, then he would have enjoyed a fellowship meal with God. And I actually think that's the basic structure of liturgy, call, response, meal. Mm. Uh, What Adam did was he substituted pure worship for idolatrous worship. He heard the call of Satan to eat from the tree. He responded in disobedience, obedience to Satan, disobedience to God. And he did have a meal, Mm. but he had the wrong meal. And that general pattern of call, response, meal is then reflected in Exodus chapter uh, 20 through to 24, where God calls Moses up the mountain, calls Israel to worship him. They respond in chapter 24 saying, we will obey all that you have laid before us. And then the elders go up the mountain with Moses and they have a a meal with God. So it's call, response, meal. Mm. It's the same in um, uh, 2 Chronicles, I think it's chapter 5 through to 7, where Solomon does the same. He has a, a worship service where he makes all the sacrifices at the dedication of the temple. And if you follow there, you get the same basic structure of call, response, meal. They have a meal. Um, and then in the book of Revelation, you can see a similar pattern. So I think that's the general pattern to liturgy. Now, you fill it out in Exodus and Chronicles with confession, with sacrifices of praise, uh, with adoration, with uh, intercession, things like that. Mm. Um, so... 
it's there in the Bible. Then what we saw as we looked at these Reformation liturgies, there's this general story. So you begin with a call to worship uh, from God. He calls us to his worship through his word. Then it's adoration. You praise him for who he is as our creator, our maker. And then you move to a reading of the law where he gives us his commands and we see that we haven't lived up to them. And so it naturally leads into a time of confession. And then having confessed our sins together, there's the assurance of pardon where God comes to us and ensure, uh, assures us that because of Christ and what he's done for us, our sins are forgiven. And then uh, you hear from him in his word and then you can respond again through offerings, your gifts of money and offerings, uh, through more intercessory prayers or saying the Lord's Prayer or saying the, uh, the one of the creeds. It's a way of reaffirming your faith, having yeah. heard from God. Uh, and then it ends with the benediction, the blessing of God on the people of God and a charge to go out and serve Christ wherever you go that week. So yes, I think there is a, a, a clear structure and story to it. Uh, I like the phrase that I heard in Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered Worship, structures tell stories. Mm. And again, this goes back to my point earlier that every church has a liturgy. Yeah. So even those who say they don't have a liturgy, you know, their liturgy, their unwritten liturgy is telling a story. Yeah. And the question is, is it telling the story of the gospel? Or is it telling another story? And that's the challenge for our churches. What story does your liturgy tell? So that might lead into another objection that someone might have related to liturgy, namely that uh, it could easily get too complex, that you have all these different elements that have to kind of flow in a certain order. And it's like, uh, is that just, is it, is it being too rigid in, in how it's got all these different elements kind of competing for the attention or the, uh, the understanding of the, the participant? Uh, no, I, I, again, maybe I could, I'll go back to the analogy, uh, the, not the analogy, I'll go back to the statement earlier, structures tell stories. And so every story has different elements to it, which makes it such a good story. Um, and so it's the same with our, um, our liturgies. Perhaps I could switch the analogy to like a nice, uh, you know, a beaded necklace. Hmm. Um, if all the elements, if all the beads on the necklace are the same color, okay, it's it's nice. But if you change them up and you have them all different colors, well, it's a more striking necklace. Yeah. And that's what we're really doing with a liturgy, with, which has different elements, call to worship, adoration, reading of the law, confession, uh, creed, um, uh, the gloria patri, uh, the prayer of illumination, catechism, sermon, um, intercessory prayers, Lord's Prayer. I know what you mean. Is it overly complex? No, it's just a beautiful mm. necklace. Yeah. It's, it's keeping, keeping on with that analogy of the necklace, is there a danger in your mind of uh, someone who maybe isn't very skilled or experienced in making jewelry, putting together all these different colored beads, but it's actually not in a very well-designed, uh, beautiful pattern of sorts, Instead, it is just kind of overwhelming and confusing. Is that is that a real danger that you've ever seen or experienced? Yes, I suppose if you ask some random on the street to start making necklaces and <laughs> here's a bunch of beads, right. they could really, 
you know they can mess it up mess it up yeah um so what you want to do is say to them go speak to someone who's made the necklace before mm. and knows and has sold good necklaces and people like the necklace go go speak to them and find out what they did and what i mean by that is go read church history go get these reformation liturgies and see what the reformers did mm. i mean if if you claim to stand in the reformed tradition whatever your church denomination is if you claim to be downstream from the reformers well then but your church service looks nothing like what the reformers did well then you need to ask yourself are mm. you really standing downstream from the reformers i wonder if there's sometimes this dynamic of a, a need for pastors and leaders and even just us as individual christians some of us might have this impulse to sort of not just copy someone else we feel like we want to figure it out for ourselves or do it fresh it needs to be new in order to be relevant or uh, compelling to people so would you kind of push back against that impulse when it comes to liturgy absolutely i think innovation is the curse of the modern church innovation is the curse on the modern evangelical church we're all into everything has to look new sign new feel new you know mix up the liturgy this week, do something a bit different. C.S. Lewis has a very striking comment on liturgy. Um, I've forgotten where it is, but it's a quote that's in the early chapters of Reformation worship, where he says that a fixed order of liturgy is better to concentrate on God than a liturgy that changes every week. Mm. Because he says every week with a liturgy that's fluid and you he says, you don't know what's coming next. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're then concentrated on what's coming next. Mm. Is it going to be another song? Is it going to be a, a little interview at the front of church? Is it going to be a prayer? Is it like, what, where are we being led? And you don't know where you're being led because it's just random every week or mixed up every week. He says a fixed liturgy takes the concentration away from the actual liturgy and puts it back on God mm, wow. be because you know what's coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the order. And so I think that's really yeah. important. And I think Lewis has tapped into something there. So on that front, then, the re the repetition, that leads into another objection that I'm sure you've heard before, that the repetition can lead not only to things feeling boring, but maybe even worse, that boredom can morph into this kind of just rote I'm not even thinking about it anymore. I'm just saying the words. I'm just doing it. And my mind is, is elsewhere altogether. A coldness to it. And I think there's, I, I have some sympathy for that when you look at, you know, maybe certain elements of the Roman Catholic Church, those who have come from that background, there are elements to that liturgy where they've testified to growing up just saying the same words, hearing the same words said, uh, even said very quickly. You can tell it's just sort of they're getting through it. So what would you say to that kind of concern someone might have? The first response would be to push back against it. And the way I do that, or would do that, is to ask, well, tell me, do you concentrate for the whole of the extemporaneous prayer in your church? So I had a friend, uh, when he went into ministry, uh, had Richard Buse, who was the successor to John Stott at All Souls in London, uh, Richard Buse gave my friend some advice. And one of the things he said is, he said, just know that in public prayer, your congregation have switched off after 30 seconds. <laughs> now, let's all be honest, right? That happens. It happens every week. <laughs> now, I 
currently go to a church where it's it's a great church, but the prayers, the intercessory prayers, go for five minutes, and it is hard work to to stay concentrated. Now that's partly my problem, my issue, mm. right? But when you look at someone like Cranmer, what did Cranmer do? He made short colics. He made these short prayers. They were written down. They were said together as a congregation. Right. And so there are ways in which um, the rote learning can actually be a better, the rote, sorry, the rote prayers, the formulaic prayers, are actually a better way to keep you more concentrated yeah. for longer. So if I was a minister again, I, I would have a confession of sin that was said jointly. So everyone's got it in front of them. And when that happens, you're concentrating on it because you're saying it out loud. You're more concentrated than just listening to someone else confess the, the, the sins for the, of the church for you. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm just saying we need to be creative about what actually works. And I don't just mean, uh, you know, in the 21st century. I mean, Cr- Cranmer in the 16th century did that for a reason. Well, yeah. people were illiterate as w- for one, so it was improving literacy. Uh, but it was also um, memorization. They were memorizing these prayers. Um, and so I think um, I would just say there's a place for rote prayers and formulaic prayers. That It's back to that C.S. Lewis thing. You know what's coming. That as you get to know that prayer, you then know what's coming and you can concentrate on it more. Now, is there a danger that it just becomes saying words that your mind and heart are no longer engaged with? Absolutely. But then there's that danger with extemporaneous prayer. Mm. I mean... I could tell you what the rote, formulaic, unwritten, extemporaneous prayer is for yeah. most evangelical, non-denominational churches right, at, at right. certain parts of the service. Lord, we pray you would just come among us now and you just be with us and just bless us. And as uh, the minister opens the word, please help us to hear you speak to us. Now, now And it just sounds very similar mm-hmm. to what I hear in any other church. I can switch off with that yeah. just as much as a rote prayer. But if the prayer is in front of me and I'm saying it with everyone else around mm, me, yeah. I'm actually more concentrated on right. it. So to connect this to Be Thou My Vision, one of the things I say in the introduction is I would really encourage people to read this liturgy out loud. Don't just sit in your bed and read it silently. You, you'll get distracted. You'll... You know, you'll switch off, your mind will wander. Actually, say it out loud. Mm, yeah. And if you're doing it together as a couple or as a family, you know, read the rubric. Hear God's call to worship through yeah, the his headings. word. Yeah, the little red rubric headings in italics. Let, if you read those out loud, if it's with a family setting or more people, then it's more interactive as well. I think anyone who is maybe somewhat familiar with the topic of liturgy, maybe their church does have a formal liturgy that they talk about, uh, or maybe they, they their church doesn't, but they're kind of aware of some of these concepts already. They might be aware that it seems like there is a bit of a resurgence of interest in liturgy, in some of these historical liturgies, some of the creeds and confessions from history that are often incorporated into a liturgy. Uh, there seems to be a renewed interest among some Christians who historically haven't been as interested in that. Uh, have you noticed that? And what do you think's behind that? I have noticed it, and uh, I've seen it among millennials. 
wanting mm. more liturgy or wanting more are you saying something good about millennials right now yeah yeah i'm all yeah i'm i'm supportive of millennials um but yeah i i see that um the illustration i always think of is that tim keller in new york working with young professionals he put on different styles of service mm. some a bit more contemporary with jazz music some a bit more traditional he said what was interesting was that in New York, the service that was most common, most popular with the young professionals was the more traditional service. Wow. That, that's I, very counterintuitive for a lot of people. Yeah, but but I think, well, it's a bit like a bad diet, right? You, you, you're you on a diet, you're eating junk food <laughs> or bad food or not, you're not getting a rich diet and you think your diet's fine, but then you start trying some other foods and at first the tastes are a bit strong and you're not quite sure about it, but you persevere and you keep eating that same food, well, actually, your taste buds really... You Come know, back to life. Yeah, and they, they have a richer appreciation of different kinds of taste and food. And and then you don't want to go back to the junk food. And I, I actually think that's what we're starting to see. I think people are a bit bored of the the not, the, the evangelical, non-denominational church service. I, I think people have had you know a bit of enough of that. Mm. And they want more than just 20 minutes of singing, Bible talk, and another song and prayer. Mm. I, I think people are wanting more than that, and the same for their quiet times. So what I would say is give it a go. Yeah. You know, give it a go. See, see what you think. And maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea, and that's totally fine. But actually give it a go for 30 days, 31 days, and just see what it does to your spiritual walk with the Lord and your prayer life. Mm. For me, I find myself less distracted, more concentrated, uh, less bored, more engaged. I find myself spotting things in Bible passages that I'd never seen before because they're like short two verses for the call to worship or short two verses for the assurance of pardon. And I just find myself, because I'm using that verse as an assurance of pardon, Right, mm. I'm I'm now thinking about it a bit differently. Yeah, right. And I'm spotting things, and then things in the creeds as well that I had not really ever appreciated. Mm. Um, Any yeah. other benefits to liturgy that you've experienced in your own life? I think it's enriched my view of God as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you say a creed every day, you're basically reciting the doctrines of the Trinity. Mm. And that that has really been something that I've enjoyed. Um, as you know, we lost our daughter five years ago, Layla, who died. At her funeral, we stood and said the Apostles' Creed. Mm. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. You know, and so things like that have come to mean a lot to me, and um, to affirm that every day, and then each Lord's Day that there is a life of the world to come. Yeah, it sort of grinds you, yeah. it recalibrates and reorientates you to what, what what life's about, what's the future about, and um, I would imagine it, it starts to connect when you're restating those core doctrines of the faith, those core pillars of what we are mm -hmm. as Christians each and every day, and we connect them to these experiences that we're having, these struggles that we're having on a daily basis, um, but having that rhythm of repeating, re reciting, um, reminding ourselves of those doctrines, 
kind of would bring them to the fore, as you said, uh, in our own minds. Yeah, they're they're fresh in your mind. They're on the the tip of your tongue, so to speak. Um, they're on your heart, and uh, they're there to help you in whatever you face that day. So you know, when you get up and you affirm the Apostles' Creed you, that you believe in God, the Maker of heaven and earth, you know that day you realize you've come across a difficulty, and you think, well, actually, my help is in the Lord who made heaven and earth, and uh, so these great truths, even in the creeds that are based on scripture that uh, come to serve very practical purposes. Mm. God can help me with anything uh, because he made everything. Mm. Where do I know that he made everything? Well, I say it in the creed every week. He made all things, uh, maker of heaven, earth, things invisible and visible in the Nicene Creed, um, which is all based on scripture, based yeah. on Colossians chapter one. Mm. Uh, one of the other things that I know many people who appreciate liturgy uh, will say is that they love the way that it connects them to history, it kind of roots them in the this long tradition of the Christian church. Speak to that a little bit. Is that a, a big part of it for you? you? You've already referenced a number of figures from church history and, and talked about their stories a little bit, but how does that help you personally in your own walk? Yes, I think that a church that has a good, rich liturgy with creeds in it and um, some of the ancient order of elements... It connects you with the stream of Christian tradition that's been going on for 2,000 years. And uh, I think that's a good reminder for pastors and churches today that the church just didn't appear in the 21st century out of nowhere. The church has been in existence since Jesus Christ and the apostles set it up in the New Testament. And so, yes, it helps us connect to that. Um, I'm thinking also of the quote by Cyprian of Carthage who said, uh, you cannot have God for your father and not have the church for your mother. Hmm. Now, that sounds so Roman Catholic to us. Yeah. You know, the church is, ooh. but that, that's Cyprian of Carthage and Calvin quotes it in his institutes. Hmm. So this is a very Protestant conception that the church is your mother. It's, it's where you were either born into or came to faith even as someone from the outside, it the church was the the organism that nurtured you in your faith. It's all that's all what the analogy is saying. Well, the way I play that analogy out is if you're gonna say that you're a Christian or you're a Christian church that stands in the Christian tradition, well then you're like a, a daughter church of the mother church, so to speak, the ancient church. Well, you ought to look like your mother. Mm. If you say you've come from your mother, you ought to look like S her. Some resemblance. Yeah. And so the question that I think churches need to ask is, does your service look like it belongs? Does it look like it belong? Does it look like it's 2,000 years old? Now, I, do, I don't mean by that it uses these and thys and all of that. I've got no time for that, <laughs> nor would the reformers if they were alive today, because it was all about the vernacular, yeah. bringing the gospel and the scriptures and the liturgy into the vernacular. So it's not about having highfalutin language that no, no one understands. That's actually the opposite of the point. Exactly. And so Luther, uh, it was a Latin mass that Luther uh, wrote a German mass about. So mm. Luther he brought it into, he brought the, it language into the, the vernacular people. of the yeah. people. And so uh, that, that's what I'm getting at. Um, so it's not about ancient language using language of the 16th century and these and those e even here in america i've noticed 
and this is just the church circles I operate in, everything in this service generally looks, feels contemporary, but when we come to say the Lord's Prayer, for some reason we say it in the old English. Our Father who art, art in, in heaven. heaven. And it's, I'm told it's because everyone knows it, and, and so you know that's what we do. But I'm like, but it, it would just take two months of saying it in modern English, and everyone would know <laughs> it in it. modern English. But I wonder, if, is that part of what some people associate with liturgy, is it has this otherness quality mm-hmm. to it. Uh, what do you think about that? Should that be part of what liturgy is trying to do, or is that actually a distraction? I think if it's to do with using you know, language that's been dead for 400 years, then it is just... Um, what was the term you used there? An other, uh, there's an otherness to it. Well, they think it's an otherness, but it's not really an otherness. It's just old language. Yeah. But the otherness that I want to see in the liturgy is an ancient creed, hmm. you know, but said in modern English. Yeah. Um, and so that's the kind of connection I want. I want ancient roots. I want, I want to feel connected to the ancient church, hmm. the apostolic church. But that doesn't have to come in the form of language that's 400 years old yeah yeah you know and so it's it's getting that distinction right and the balance right so that's what i mean by feeling connected to the past not using the language of the past but the content of the past in contemporary language Mm. if speaking to the person who who loves liturgy who's maybe he's a pastor or a congregant who who just already understands the value of this feels the value of it are there any dangers to an overemphasis on liturgy? Yes, it's like everything. There's there's ditches on both sides of the road, and um, absolutely, there's there's um, some high church liturgy that makes me uncomfortable. Or well, what would be an example of something that would do that? Well, it's mainly um, including elements that are not prescribed in Scripture. So mm. you know, bells and smells. And, yeah. You know, candlesticks and things like that. So there's that aspect that I think, you know, the sign of the cross and bowing at the front, things like that. All that I think is unbiblical. And so you can have elements, but, but that for some is high liturgy. It's, it enriches the liturgy and all yeah. of this. Um, now, I will, I will say this, and maybe we can come back to this, of physical gestures in in our church services. So maybe let's just note that and come back to it but uh, so there's that aspect that i think liturgy can start to be uh, done badly in an unbiblical way and yes there are some people who just love the liturgy instead of loving the savior Hmm. and again to go back to the reformers and to what c.s lewis was saying in the reformers were trying to recover a reformed biblical liturgy because they wanted to recover the gospel they wanted people to see the gospel in the service, to hear it in the go- hear it in the service. Uh, it's why they reformed the mass because the gospel had been lost with the erroneous teaching in the mass. They didn't get rid of the liturgy; they just reformed it. But the whole purpose of it was that we would worship God aright through His Son and and love Him and His Son more in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. So, yes. There are ditches on both sides mm. of the road, and people can get too into liturgy as a thing in and of itself. Yeah, liturgy right. is a means to another end. Mm. That's the way I would put it. It's it's a conduit, but it's not the destination. Yeah. The destination is God. And so the question is, what liturgy would most help us mm. 
to concentrate on God in this time together as a church yeah. or in my own time with the Lord, what, what liturgy would help me to concentrate most on God? Yeah. Is there a structure that could help to yeah. push me towards God? Yeah. 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 One other uh, benefit that I know that you believe and that others have spoken to is just the participatory nature of many liturgies. That mm-hmm. it, is, it is something that we are all doing together rather than it, it pushes back against the idea that the church service is something that I go to sort of watch sort of passively. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I'm involved in every facet of it. Does that resonate with you? You think that's a, a important part? Yes, very much so. Um, and again, you see it in some of the Psalms, the antiphonal thing with the refrains. Um, and uh, I think a service that has the minister doing most from the front is A, not as biblical as it could be, because I think there is this antiphonal thing um, that you can find in different parts of Scripture with the angels singing back and forth and things like that, because our worship on earth is just really patterning worship in heaven. Um, so yes, and, and I think again, it's back to that point of concentration. If someone else is doing all the work for me from the front, praying the prayer of adoration, praying um, the prayer of confession of sin, which you know, I'm, I'm not saying every single prayer has to be a congregational prayer, but if, if they're doing most of the prayers from the front and the only prayer I say is the Lord's Prayer, then I'm just not as engaged and mm-hmm. concentrated. So I think the prayer of adoration is fine. It's good for the minister to lead the congregation in prayer That's that way. That's good. Confession of sin, I think, should be corporate. Um, I think the prayer of illumination can be the minister himself, or you can mix it up and have the congregation say that as well. Um, intercessory prayers, I think that's the pastor who should say that prayer, pastoral prayer. But there's ways that he can do it. He can split it into three. So we're going to pray for personal things. And at the end of this prayer, I'm going to say, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and I want you to join me mm. with saying a hearty amen. And then I'm <laughs> going to pray for the world. And then I'm going to or pray for our church. And at the end, I'll say, through Jesus Christ our Lord, join me with an amen. And pray for the world. And then have a colic kind of prayer, a, a short paragraph prayer that either the minister writes or you take one of the colics from the Book of Common Prayer or one of the Reformers' prayers, and you say that together as a congregation at the end of the prayers of intercession. Mm. So I think there are, are ways that the minister can include the congregation more. And yes, we, we sing together, right? But we don't pray together a lot. Yeah. But I think it's both, you know, that they met together to pray together as a church. Yeah, right. In the, the Book of Acts. Maybe as a last set of questions, I wonder if you could speak to three different categories of people who might be listening right now. The first being pastors or church leaders who um, they are they are leading a church that doesn't really focus a lot on liturgy. They haven't thought maybe perhaps much about this topic before. Uh, and they're interested in kind of maybe taking some steps to be more intentional, to bring in some of these rich uh, Christian traditions and, and, and the history of this. Uh, into their services to be helping people to be more participatory. What would be some kind of practical next steps that you would recommend that they take as they explore that more? If they get a Sunday off church, go to a church that they know is more liturgical Mm. and just go and experience it. Uh, It's like much in ministry, uh, things are better caught than taught sometimes. And what might convince you to become 
more liturgical or enrich your liturgy. It should be consistent. They're not becoming more liturgical because mm-hmm. everyone's liturgical. Right. But enrich your liturgy is go and experience it somewhere and you go, oh, I love that. I love that the way they did this or did that. And uh, our church doesn't do that. And that this is a way I could enrich my service at church. So the first thing would be go, go find a church that does it and just experience it for yourself. Uh, the second thing would be, you know, on the internet, you can you can go to church websites and they have their order of service on there that's posted each week. That's another thing to do. Find a church that you know that would be uh, following a more set liturgy and just click on and download the bulletin and see what they do. Mm. Um, it's actually one of the things I do when I want to visit a new church. I, I think, right, I'm going to click. I'm going to go find what their liturgy's like. That's going to tell me. You feel like you learn a lot about oh, that. Oh, very much so. Very much so. You know, Gordon Fee said, let me hear you sing and I will tell you your theology. Well, I say, let me see your liturgy and I'll tell you your theology, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing would be get, read some good books. So um, uh, Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered Worship, would be a really helpful place for a pastor to start. Um, the book Reformation Worship that myself and Mark Ernji did, we have three chapters at the beginning of it, so 26 liturgies three chapters i do a biblical theology of worship called uh, the title of the essay is uh, worship on earth as it is in heaven and i trace out the kinds of liturgy we see in the bible a bit of what i was saying earlier about call response meal and then other elements of confession sacrifice of praise hearing from the word etc thrown in there um so that would be uh, a book to get I do Biblical Theology of Worship Mark Ernge does the history of the Reformation of Worship in the Re- Reformation and then we talk about um, how then shall we worship today mm. and what elements should you include in your worship um, and how should your worship service look so those three essays I think uh, might be helpful um, and then Be Thy My Vision Yeah. Uh, if people are interested and want to taste and see what it's like you know, get the book and give it a go for 31 days. I totally appreciate it's not everyone's cup of tea. But if nothing else, it might just encourage people to do their quiet times a little bit differently. I was going to ask that as the second category of person. It's just the, the regular Christian who uh, is looking, they've heard what you've said today, even about personal worship, our personal quiet times, and would love, they, they feel the need for perhaps more structure to it more uh, of a rhythm to it rather than it being kind of a I'm going to see what I can pray for today uh, whatever comes to mind I'm going to open my Bible to a random spot and just hope that God speaks to me um, what encouragement would you offer to that person obviously you want them to check out your book Be Thou My Vision but are there other things that they could be thinking about or exploring that would be helpful yeah I read an R.C. Sproul book years ago on the Lord's Prayer and um forgotten the title of it scripture union published it it was like in the 70s or 80s and he just had the little acronym acts acts when you pray think about acts it's always stayed with me Mm. a adoration start with adoration c confession confess your sins to god t uh, thanksgiving thank god for something and s supplication make your requests known Mm. to god just that little thing helped me in my quiet times yeah. that I was generally trying to use the ACTS structure yeah. when I it's did a, pray. It's a, it's a mini liturgy. Yeah, there you go. For your prayer, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for helping us to, to 
perhaps think a little bit more deeply about this topic of liturgy generally as it applies to the church and our corporate worship, and then also as it even applies to our own personal daily worship of God. We appreciate it. Well, thanks, Matt, for having me on the podcast, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to chat to you about it. That was Jonathan Gibson on the value of liturgy in the life of the Christian. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Be Thou My Vision, A Liturgy for Daily Worship. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode and appreciate the show, would you consider leaving us a review? That really helps us get the word out about the Crossway podcast. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.